0: This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, then it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please join me for a word of prayer. God, take my words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our will. Set them on fire for love of your Son in whose name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Please be seated. And welcome to those who are joining us online as well. We are in a sermon series entitled Shine. We are looking at various ways that uh, God shines, his church shines. Uh, The the passage that inspired that sermon series is actually our preaching passage from this morning. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. I want to make two points from this passage. Uh, Point number one. You can follow along in some sermon notes in, your, in page 11. Point number one is that Jesus asserts that Christianity is good for the world. Now, you may think, well, he has a biased opinion about the subject, but I think we'll find that that is, in fact, the case. Church is good for the world. Point number one. Point number two, the good that the church is for the world is not unqualified. Jesus gives us a couple of qualifiers and says the church is good for the world. Christians are good for the world if and only if they do the following things, we'll see two qualifiers. So point number one, the church is good for the world. You are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Salt and light are good now. Uh, I've heard a chef say one of the secrets basically, the difference between a good chef and a bad chef is the difference between how much salt they put in something. Salt is good now, and it was especially good then. Uh, Salt was one of the few widely available uh, spices, and back then, salt also functioned as a preservative. You're probably aware of this. In the days before refrigeration, meat was packed in salt, fish was packed in salt. Think modern day beef jerky. So it's a way to preserve food. Salt good now, salt was especially good then. Light is good now. We seldom recognize how important light is until we're in a power outage or out somewhere where there's less city lights, less street lights, less uh, headlights, we realize just how dark it gets and how quickly it gets dark. Think of the ancient Near East with probably one little lamp sitting in your house, the only lamp to light up. You would know, there, there, there would be no doubt as to the value of light. Two very good things, two very common things. Uh, One Roman philosopher said, is there anything better for the world than sunshine and salt? That was from a philosopher named Pliny, P-L-I-N-Y. So these are two things that are good for the world. And Jesus says, you are like these things. You are good for the world as well. Christians, like salt, like light, are good for the world. Do you believe it? You'd be excused for having a little crisis of confidence if you were to wonder, gosh, is Christianity really good for the world? We think of the sad events on January 6th and what made some of those images especially upsetting was the association of some of those rioters with Christian paraphernalia or carrying crosses. I've seen articles, maybe you've seen articles that would equate this to some sort of Christian insurrection. Now, I don't believe that is the case, and any followers of Christ who were acting in violence certainly were not acting as a, a representation of Christian faith. But you and I could be right to think, gosh, is it? Is Christianity really good? I mean, maybe, maybe the critics are right. Maybe Christianity is just a religion for old, grumpy white guys, like I'm rapidly becoming. Is it good? Yes, says Jesus. Well, Jesus has a vested interest, but history also widely, wildly, and widely affirms what Jesus says. Christianity is shockingly good for culture. I'm reading a book, so this is going to be a little bit of a book report, Uh, a book called Dominion by Tom Holland, who I think is also the actor in Spider-Man, different Tom Holland. Um, the book is how the Christian Revolution remade the world that book that word "revolution is significant because the revolution that jesus christ the changes that Jesus Christ brought were in fact a revolution. I want to mention three areas in which christianity Jesus revolutionized the world, and the book is all the more interesting because the author Tom Holland, describes himself as someone who grew up in the church but doesn 't have any real active faith now in other words he doesn 't have a dog in the fight he 's not arguing for the sake of christianity he 's just as a historian observing the phenomenal impact of Jesus Christ on culture. Three areas. Christianity revolutionized the world. Number one, in the use of money. We tend now to think of charity as almost an expected thing. When someone has phenomenal wealth, someone like a Bill Gates, we almost expect that that person would give some of their phenomenal wealth to those less fortunate. Like We celebrate charity as a cultural good. Where did this come from? It did not come from the Greeks and the Romans and the classical cultures. This was a revolution of Christian faith. Basil, one of the early uh, uh, Leaders of the church. He was a Cappadocian father, if you want a a nickel word. Uh, So Basil wrote The bread in your board belongs to the hungry, the cloak in your wardrobe to the naked, the shoes you let rot to the barefoot, the money in your vaults to the destitute. In other words, you search in vain for this idea in the cultures of Rome or classic Greek for this idea that charity, you have an obligation to give some of your wealth to those who are less fortunate. That is a revolution that came by way of Jesus Christ. Christianity transformed our approach to sex. One Roman philosopher wrote this, it is accepted that every master is entitled to use his slave as he desires. And you can put air quotes around the word use. And this is not from sort of the outland, this mainstream, the philosophers you would know, the Socrates, the Aristotles, they wrote things that would just curdle milk. things that assumed that the basic approach to sex was might makes right. The Me Too movement of a couple of years ago would have had zero chance of traction in ancient Rome. None. Zippo. Not Me Too. Who cares? The idea that a woman, a slave, a boy has dignity over their own body is a result of the revolution brought by Jesus Christ. The idea that your body is a temple, uh, sacred in some ways, is is not an idea that you find anywhere else other than the revolution caused by Christ. Third area, power. Money, sex, and power. You may recognize those as the three things that uh, monastics renounce. Money, sex, and power. Christians revolutionized the approach to power. Pope Gregory, one of the early popes, uh, better known as Gregory the Great, wrote this. He he traced the implications of Christ's choice to live and die as one of the poor to its logical conclusion. And here is the conclusion. Dignity, which no philosopher had ever taught, might be possessed by the stinking, toiling masses. Here's his conclusion. It was for all. In other words, those in authority could not abuse those without authority, without power, without status. Each had equal dignity. One of the most impactful lines ever written is in our Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men, we could expand that, all men, all women are created equal, endowed with certain unalienable rights. Not to take umbrage with one of the most significant lines ever written, I have one correction. These are not self-evident. It is not self-evident that you and I are created equal. Some are smart, some are not. Some are tall, some are short. Some are fat, some are thin. Some are black, some are white. Some have authority, some have power, some have wealth, some have none. By what basis can anyone say that the President of the United States has, is under the same obligations, subject to the same laws, has the same dignity, the same value as the beggar on the street? They are, uh, it, the, the only thing that is self-evident is that they, that they are not equal. The idea that there is an equality of human nature just because of the dignity of all humanity is a revolution that can only be traced back to Jesus Christ. So, the list goes on and on of different ways that our culture has just been radically transformed for the good by Jesus Christ. Jesus said, You are salt, you are light. And his followers have been just that. Well, enough for history. That brings us to today. Wouldn't you like to be salt and light today? Wouldn't you like to have the same type of impact that they had? Absolutely. Wouldn't you like to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem? Absolutely. But you'll note that the instructions are a little bit sparse. We don't see Jesus saying, do this That or the other. He seems to assume that the power, the transformative power of believing in him will cause a radical transformation in the lives of those who trust in him. And he gives two qualifiers. He says, you will be salt and light if, and so let me get to the two qualifiers. The first qualifier is salt remains good as long as it remains distinct or as long as it remains Pure, right? So again, to our passage, you are the salt of the earth. How shall salt, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything. In other words, salt remains as it retains its effectiveness as long as it retains its purity. Makes sense? Uh, so the Dead Sea, maybe you heard of this body of water. Uh, It's a a sea that has has all inlets and no outlets, so uh, the water evaporates, leaving a lot of salt. It's seven times more salty than the sea. Unfortunately, so life can't live there. No life can live there. Unfortunately, the salt is no good either because the salt has been helplessly uh, combined with uh, other chemicals and other impurities. So the salt has lost its saltiness. It is no longer good for anything aside to be used for uh, the path under someone's foot. Maybe Jesus had this in mind when he said, salt is no good unless it retains its saltiness. So again, salt is effective as long as it remains distinct and as long as it remains impure. Christians, therefore, are effective as long as Christians retain their distinctiveness, as long as Christian retains their separateness, and that to the degree they do, they will maintain their effectiveness. Jesus Christ is distinct. Christian faith is distinct. Christianity, those who follow him, should be distinct as well. Our positive impact in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, in our society, in our government, is contingent upon our distinction from it. Makes sense? The church word for distinct or set apart is the word holy. Holy. The effectiveness of the church for the world depends upon the holiness of the church in the world. So that is the first contingency. I mentioned three areas in which the Jesus revolutionized culture. Money, sex, and power. And these are three areas among many which we must still retain our distinctiveness. And it is a scandal when church has become or Christians become, uh, fall to the ways of the world and their use of money or their inappropriate relationships. When church becomes too wed to politics because Christianity loses its distinctive taste, its distinctive zing. It is no longer good for anything other than to be used as a footpath. What a height to fall from. Here Jesus says, you are the saviors of the world. But if it loses its distinctiveness, it is nothing more than dust for the road. Second qualifier, you are the light of the world. But again, there is an if. And the implied if, you are the light of the world as long as you remain unhid. A lamp is effective only as it is on a stand and not under a basket. Followers of Christ remain effective as long as they remain unhidden, as long as they are unashamed. And throughout the Bible, there is constant warning warning from Jesus, from the apostles, to be not be ashamed. If it were not a common temptation for us to be susceptible to the opinions of others, Jesus would not have warned us. Do not be ashamed of me, for when I return, I will be ashamed of you. It's the same thing he says of here, do not hide your light under a bushel. Christians are not to conceal the truth of who they are. A Christian who hides who they are from the world is no more effective than a light hidden under a basket. Or as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, a community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. And so we can summarize these two qualifiers simply by saying this. The Christian is effective in their neighborhood, in their place of work. The Christian is effective in the world as long as they retain, remain who they are. You are salt. Do not lose your saltiness by compromise. You are light. Do not hide your light out of fear. And I find this passage incredibly encouraging. I find it very hopeful to think of the long history of the church and the positive, not perfect, but the positive impact Christian faith has had on culture. And I find it slightly challenging because the impact of the church is not without qualification. It is contingent upon the distinctiveness and the courage of the followers of Christ. I hope you find the same. I hope you are encouraged. I hope you are slightly challenged as well. And I want to conclude with one example of one person who was a shining example of salt and light, someone I've never heard of, and again I conclude with a reference from the book I began. It's the name Benjamin Lay, wife Sarah Lay. Two Quakers living in 1700s, born in uh, the island of Barbados, in a time when slavery was of course uh, just a foregone conclusion. Many people citing passages to uh, justify the practice. Uh, Benjamin, uh, of all, among other things, he was uh, afflicted with a, a physical handicap. He had severe scoliosis, almost a hunchback, so a diminutive man. But he had a firsthand witness of the uh, brutality of slavery when he saw a runaway slave being punished. And he took, it just didn't make sense. The notion that God loved the whole world and that Christians should enslave others was just incongruous to him. And he began to lobby, one of the first, not the first, but one of the first to take a committed stand against uh, the practice. He was uh, unpopular enough in Barbados that he fled, he was a Quaker, he fled up to Philadelphia and of course Philadelphia was a haven of of Quakers, William Penn. And again he began his work there for the abolition of of slavery. And here the story gets good. Keep in mind, I mean this is a man, probably four foot nothing, I mean short, handicapped. He was invited to address a gathering of friends, that's another word for Quakers. Uh, So at this kind of annual council of the church, he rose to his feet, smoothed out his coat, and he drew a black sword that he'd been concealing in his robes. He approached the podium, and he declared in a resounding voice that the enslavement of Africans was as justifiable in the sight of the Almighty as if I should thrust a sword through their hearts as I do through this book. And prior to the meeting, he had taken his Bible and he had hollowed it out, and he had put a bladder of red juice in the Bible. So again, back to the story, holding up a hollowed-out Bible in which he had just concealed a bladder of red juice, he ran it through. Juice splattered everywhere. I'm sure everyone thought it was blood. Indignation, and this four-foot-nothing, follower of Christ, salt and light type of guy, slowly shuffled out the door. Well, his work continued, and uh, never did once lay despair. And 20 years after he had gatecrashed the annual assembly of Philadelphia, he lay mortally sick in bed, and he was brought news that a new assembly had, had voted to abolish the slave trade. And he said, now I can die in peace. Benjamin Lay succeeded by the time of his death. This is what the author writes. Benjamin Lay had succeeded by the time of his death in 1759 in making the community in which he lived just a little bit more like him. And the author doesn't clarify the pronoun. I wonder the who he had in mind. Did he make the community more like him, Benjamin Lay, or did he make the community a little bit more like him? I think both are applicable. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It has been true in our past, may it be true today. Please rise.